It's good to be here this morning. Uh, I give welcome. Now, my, uh, um, I'll then speak in a minute. Um, just to say it's good to be here. We've got some from folk from Devonport Baptist at the moment. At the moment, Devonport Baptist, we are homeless. Just so you know, we're a homeless church. Um, just before Christmas, we um, were told by the Welcome Hall, where we've met for many years, that, uh, that we, they couldn't have us anymore. The Welcome Hall was closing. And so um, we found a new place. Well, actually, when I say new place, it's actually a very old place. It's where the church first started. It's called the Mount Wise Neighbourhood Centre. And we're starting, we have our first service there, back in the Mount Wise Neighbourhood Centre next Sunday. And we're going to have some pasties afterwards and celebrate the fact that we've got a new location. But at this, this week, we are homeless. We have no home. So we've come to join you. So you've got, they've had me at the 9 o'clock, I'm here at the 10.30. And then you've got Rachel, who is our student pastor this evening. So you've got the full Devonport experience um, today, if you want to. Um, <coughs> So hopefully you can come as well and hear Rachel this evening and support her. She's actually, many of you will know, she's a former member of Muttley and she joined us a few years ago and uh, she's doing a really good job as working with us as a student pastor. I'm going to start by reading John 9, 1 to 7. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who'd been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, <coughs> why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. And while I'm here, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told them, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. When I was writing this, um, I, um, I just read an article in the Plymouth Herald um, online edition. And uh, it was about a special needs school that had been vandalised. And it's an appalling story uh, and sometimes when I read these stories, I, I flick down to the comment section. It's always a bad mistake to read to the comment section. It's, but actually, I decided I'd, I'd read the comments. And one commentator said, said, well, what we need to do is we need to release the CCTV footage to everybody who can see, identify the guilty, and then go to their house and smash up all of their stuff and teach them a lesson. Now... For me, that tells me exactly why the CCTV should never be released. Firstly, because <coughs> everyone deserves a fair trial. And often, you know, vigilante groups and all that stuff, mistaken identity, they make mistakes, they, you know, you be smashing up the wrong people's houses. Rumour gets round, OX did it, and, you know, it's not necessarily true. Secondly, justice has to be fair. And while smashing their stuff up might seem like fairness... The reality is, it's not justice. That doesn't, that's not the way we work. In the, in. So, when someone does something wrong, there is a desire by us to, that they should be found guilty and punished. We think somehow <coughs> that will solve the problem. We live in a retributive society and we demand retribution. 
despite the fact that actually restorative justice, which on the surface seems weaker, actually produces higher, well, reduces reoffending rates than retributive justice. And the situation here is, is, is different but similar. Their view of God is that God punishes the guilty. But what that means is, if you were sick or ill, God must have been punishing you in some way. That you were obviously guilty of a crime, uh, and if you can't find what that crime was, there was probably some secret thing that you've done that no one else knew about, that God had punished you for. But what happens to someone who is born blind? What crime had they committed? Well, the logic for them was simple. Well, if sickness was the result of sin, was the punishment for sin, then someone else must have done something wrong, one of their parents or grandparents. Someone must have done something. And so this is the question that Jesus has to answer. Who was the sinner? What was the sin? Why was this person born blind? And why was this important? Well, this was important because I think we need to understand the structure of first century society. Uh, And that keeping clean, sinless, being sinless was a really important thing. Because because of the way they constructed their religious society. I I was going to put out a picture, I forgot to print it out for you. It's a temple structure. And the temple structure was kind of like circles of of various circles leading through into the centre. And at the edge of the circle was basically, you know, there were courts that led into the centre, a series of courts that led into the centre. The outer court, the court of the Gentiles, was one where everyone could go in. Everyone was allowed in, whether Gentile, women, whatever, was allowed in the outer court. So this outer ring, everyone was allowed into. But the next court, the court of the women, Gentiles weren't allowed into. So there would be people, you, you know, we called them money changers, you know, in the story of the, the money lenders when Jesus goes in to cleanse the temple. And they would stand and they would guard and make sure that the wrong people didn't get to the next level. So there was the court of the Gentiles. The next one was the court of the women. <coughs> The women is a bit deceptive calling it called the women because actually it didn't just mean women. It also meant women and children. But also more importantly for the man born blind, it meant anyone who was maybe physically disabled was, was allowed to go into that area. Lepers and the sick, the blind, anyone could go in who was not, who was not, who was Israel, Israel, from the Israel race. So that was the court of the women. The next court was the court of the Israelites. But that was only for pure, clean Jewish men. No women, no children, no lepers, no blind, nobody who would be considered sinful or wrong would go in there. Not that children were sinful, but they weren't experienced old enough. They weren't allowed in. It was only for Jewish clean, Jewish, sinless men. They were the Israelites. So that was their court of the Israelites. And the next was the court of the priests. 
And that was pretty obvious he was allowed in there. Anyone who was a Levi or a priest would be allowed into the court of the priests. And the very heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies. That was where heaven and earth met, where God lived. They believed, literally, that God lived in the Holy of Holies. And so you can see what is occurring here, is as you got closer to the centre, you got closer to God. So out on the edge were the Gentiles, then the women and the sick and the children, and then the Israelites, and then the priests, and finally, once a year, the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, and he'd do so with a rope tied round to him, in case God smited him while he was in there. Um, the idea simply was that was who was acceptable to God? Who was right in God's eyes as far as they were concerned? So being born blind, meant that this man was forever kept away from the heart of God. Literally, the people who suffered the most were kept furthest from God himself. Because clearly, this man had been born blind because that was a result of sin. Whether that was his sin or his parents' sin, he was a sinner because he was born blind. So the question is simply... Who was the sin? Where was the sin? Who caused the sin? Why is this man blind? <coughs> Jesus' answer uh, actually creates as many problems as it solves. One thing he does do is disconnect sickness from sin. But then he doesn't really help us further on. Why was this man born blind? Because he says, this man was born blind for this moment for this time, so that I could heal it, so I could prove who I am. But this isn't really a universal explanation for everybody who is born with a sickness, whatever that might be. But it does help us understand that sense that God wants to use us in the midst of our suffering and our crisis to give a purpose to suffering. I'm, I'm a chaplain at the university, I'm one of the university chaplains, and every year there's a mission week, and every year that mission week, one of the subjects of the lunch clubs is always, why does God allow suffering? Uh, and, and never do I hear any answers that are particularly good. Because often, it's not a matter of how does God allow suffering, but how does God live with us in our suffering? You see, Jesus isn't a man who is ignorant of suffering. Jesus meets us in our suffering because Jesus knows intimately suffering. Jesus knows what it's like to be poor. You know, when Jesus, with the Christmas story, when we meet Jesus, where do we meet? We meet him in the backwater of Bethlehem, not the glory and splendor of the temple or the, or the, or the, or the palace of Jerusalem. He's in a manger in this backwater that is Bethlehem. He's in, a back, he's in the back house, he's in with the stable, because his mother has been rejected because she was clearly an immoral woman. Now that's the sense of the story. You know, the, the rumour had got out, she's got pregnant and it's not Joseph's. So when she goes to Joseph's family, what do they do? They don't allow her in. And a culture of hospitality, you invite everyone in, but they cast her out, they put her in with the animals even though she's about to give birth. 
That's not done in a culture of hospitality unless they think this woman is shameful, sinful, to be cast out. That's the story of Jesus' birth. That's the scandal of Christmas. Jesus knows what it's like for the whole of his life for people to question his birth. You can read it in John 7, John 8, where they say to him, we know who our father is, but do you? Do you know who your father is? That sense that somehow Jesus was illegitimate, born out of scandal, constantly questioned about who his father was, because we know it's not Joseph. That's what Jesus grew up in. That was Jesus' life when he grew up. Constant sense of scandal and rejection. When his parents go to the temple to offer a sacrifice, what do they offer? They offer the bare minimum. They offer two small doves. That's all they could give because they weren't rich. They weren't affluent. They offered the littlest they could give because they had nothing else. When Jesus starts his ministry, the ministry is a sense of constant rejection for him. Whether that be the Pharisees or the religious authorities. But actually worse still, there's times when his family come to him and reject him. And say, what are you doing? You're going mad. Stop it. Come back home with us. A sense of rejection for his very ministry from everyone around him. To the point where in the end... One of his best friends sells him for a couple of pounds, a couple of gold coins. While another one of his, his closest friends, says, I do not know that man. Not just once, but three times. Constant sense of rejection. And then he goes to court and he's falsely accused. Things that he never did. He's falsely accused in an unfair trial. And then he's taken away and he's whipped and he's beaten. He's spat on. He's shouted at. He's despised. And he's put on a cross. The most painful method of execution that the Romans who knew about painful execution could devise. And there on the cross, he had his own mother weeping at his feet. And he watches as the few possessions that he has are ripped up and shared between a couple of soldiers while they play a game of dice. While on either side of him, the, the other prisoners debate who he was and what he was doing and question him. Jesus is a man of suffering, a man who fully knows our sorrows. He is a man of sorrows, as Isaiah calls him. And do you know what? Sometimes we get this image that God sort of rejects Jesus on the cross. No, he doesn't. I believe that God stares intimately because Trinity cannot reject Trinity. God stares deeply on the face of Jesus and the Spirit and the Father and Jesus are united on the cross in suffering, in understanding what it's like to suffer. And even after Jesus dies, he's taken away to the grave of a pauper, a borrowed grave, and placed there. And when he rises, do you know what? His scars aren't wiped clean. They become his glory. 
And then when we read in Revelation of Jesus appearing, it says that he's the slaughtered lamb. They look for a lion, but they find only a lamb. You know, often we think, oh, Revelation, there's the Lion of Judah. No, only a lamb appears. Jesus appears as a sacrificial lamb. And later, when he rides in on a white horse, he is drenched in blood. But this isn't the blood of his enemies. This is his own blood that he's drenched in. And he has a sword, but it's not a sword, a physical sword. But his sword is his own words. Jesus knows suffering. And because Jesus, at the very heart of God, knows suffering, God knows suffering. God is not some distant God immune from suffering, set apart from suffering, but a God who intimately understands and knows what it's like to suffer He is a God of compassion and mercy and love who weeps with us in our despair and in doing so brings meaning to our suffering. So Jesus heals this man. (coughs) And in the process, he declares himself to be the light of the world. He takes a man who is in darkness and gives him light. And in so doing, demonstrates what Jesus comes to do. To set blind people free. To bring people who are in darkness into the light. He opens the eyes of the blind to see who he truly was. And because of that, The blind man is now free to enter the temple of God. Free to go into the court of the Israelites. Free to get closer to God. But actually in some ways, he's already close to God because he's met with Jesus. Because the temple wasn't the place where heaven and earth truly met. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the place where God lives. And Jesus is doing something amazing. He isn't walking around amongst the holy and the religious. He's walking around amongst the crowds with the lame and the sick and the blind. He was opening up for anyone and everyone. He was blowing open the walls of the, the, the religious had put in place, saying, God doesn't go to you. So what does God do? He goes to them. Jesus is questioning all the definition. He hangs out with women. He says, let the children come to me. He goes and talks to Gentiles. He goes and hangs out with Samaritans. Everyone is given access to God through Jesus. The place where heaven and earth meet. The true temple. Not a building, a static, physical place. But a person. Jesus was and is the only temple we need. And do you know what he does? He makes us temples. He makes us the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world, but he actually says also, you are the light of the world. 
Yeah, the, the temple, the Shekinah of God comes out. The, the light bursts through from the temple. Well, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but he says, you are the light of the world. You will become temples. You will become places where heaven and earth meet. As I've said before, when I last preached, I think it was, that we become little pieces of walking, talking heaven in our workplaces, in our families, in our communities, in our homes, amongst our neighbours. We become opportunities for people to experience the light of God. Jesus is the temple and he makes us temples. But we have to still, there's still this connection. What is this connection between sin and sickness? And there is. Our sin has consequences. If we live self-centered and selfish lives, it will impact ourselves and it will impact others. The drug dealer who offers a taster to the naive teenager, saying, try it, it'll be all right, because he knows that he can continue to sell and sell and sell. The drunk driver who selfishly has a few drinks and starts driving and injures or kills a child. The sexual abuser who preys on the innocent child. The bigot who uses social media to troll those who they hate. The angry man who comes home and beats his wife. The businessman who puts profit over the people who work for him. The billionaire who places short bets on the economy so that they can line their own, their own pocket. The government that implements laws that favour the rich over the poor. The economic system that we have that is fueled by climate, by, by fossil fuels that fuel climate change. All of these things impact our world. All of these things are driven by self-centred living, by greed and by idolatry. And they impact people, whether it's mental health, sexual abuse survivors, the family that loses their partner because of a job loss, the people who have the lowest carbon footprint in our world who are most impacted by man-made climate change. Our sin. Our greed, our selfishness, our idolatry. These things do not exist in a vacuum. They cause death, which is why Paul says that the wages of sin is death. You see that death in people who are dominated by selfish living, by sinfulness. They are blind and they need their eyes opened. God can save us from sin. And God does save us from sin through Jesus. But often we live constantly with the consequence of that sin. Jesus doesn't get rid of the scars when he comes back as a resurrected body. He is scarred by the sin that kept him on the cross. In some ways, we have to learn that suffering is part of life. If we've never suffered, we've never lived. We all carry the scars of suffering. <coughs> but Jesus does deal with sin. That's why he came to live, die and rise and will come again. 
And God doesn't say to us in this, I'm sorry for your suffering, but when you die, there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering. While that is true, when we die, there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. But God, through Jesus, says, in this life, I know you're suffering because I have been there. Jesus knows suffering because he has suffered. Will God heal you from your suffering? Do you know the answer to that question is yes, possibly, no, probably. Sometimes God does heal us from our suffering, from our struggles. Sometimes we see the redemption that we want. But more often than not, we have to live within the suffering. There's no reason why some get their miracle while others don't. In some ways, it's not about being better or stronger or superior in faith. Often the ones who see no healing are more faithful than the ones that do. I never understand that in the economy of God. But God doesn't offer wishy-washy platitudes. Oh, it's going to be all right. God doesn't do that. God offers something more powerful than that. God offers empathy. Empathy means literally getting down in the dirt with people. And in incarnation, Jesus gets down in the dirt with humanity. And not a cosseted life. Jesus came as a king but didn't live in a castle or a palace. Jesus offers a real life, and he hangs out with real people. Paul describes it as emptying himself of all the trappings of kingship. And he does this so that he can know us, so that he can understand us, so that he can walk with us in our most difficult times that we ever face. I've said before earlier that if you haven't suffered, you haven't lived. You know, suffering is part of life. It's how we live in that suffering, how we learn to allow suffering not to destroy us, but somehow we learn the process and living in suffering. If you're in a position where you're suffering at the moment and you're really struggling with life or whatever, then I'll be at the front. I would love to pray with you. You don't have to tell me all the details. Just enough. I will be happy to sit, I'll be here to pray with any of you that are struggling with suffering, with pain, with hardship, whatever it is, whatever your situation. I want to close in prayer though. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are not ignorant, immune, uncaring of the stuff of our lives that cause us to suffer. Thank you, you know that intimately because you are a God who suffers, a man of sorrows. Dear Lord, help us to know you in our suffering, to know you in all the stuff that keeps us hard, you know, makes our life hard, makes life difficult. Be with us today, this morning. And I pray, Lord, that... <coughs> Some people today will be able to understand clearly why 
you've taken them on the journey you have. And I pray, Lord, also for healing. I pray for that, you know, that you didn't just leave that blind man blind, but you healed him. So I pray for physical, mental, emotional healing this morning. In your holy name, amen.